I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. I said at the end of the last session that I would pick up the, the, the question again at the beginning of this one. So, so if anybody wasn't here, the question was, where did, where did you get your definition of rhetoric and what are some of the sources for that? So I talked about my own, my own history um, growing up in a, in a, a rhetorically rich uh, denomination, but one that, that resisted rules and regulations or even the art of rhetoric. It, it, should, it had to come from within, you see. And there was something really powerful about that, but I, but I don't quite hold to the same theory of rhetoric anymore. And we talked then about the seven liberal arts and their relationship to rhetoric. That came really afterward, I suppose. But, but we talked about the whole history of the development of rhetoric, how there is no one school of thought on rhetoric, that one of the things that the classical educators did for 1800, 2000 years while they were having this classical education thing was they argued about rhetoric. What is its place? Is it more or less important than dialectic? Is it more or less important than grammar? Is What about astronomy and music? What, what matters most here? What is the place of rhetoric? And so it's not that there's one kind of flat answer that says this is it. And so, and then I read the Apostle Paul who in 1 Corinthians 1 to 3, pretty, pretty explicitly, I don't know if I'd say condemns the words of, of wisdom or the wisdom of man, um, but he says you can't find God with it. And so then what's the point? When you're proclaiming the gospel, you expect to, to reason people into the gospel? Hang on, sorry. Haunted house. Um, door was open. So, so um we, 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 don't, we don't overpower a person with an argument to make them believe that Christ is the, is the eternal Logos or the, the promised one. You proclaim. And so I've spent my whole life, really, since childhood, trying to figure out what is the connection between public speaking and the principles of public speaking and what the classical educators taught about public speaking and what the Bible says about public speaking. Now, tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it a step further. And frankly, what I'm going to talk about tonight could take a minute, or it could take 20, because it's, and I don't have that. But it's probably 
It's either going to be the most obvious thing you've ever heard anybody say, or it's going to be really hard to understand. And that'll probably vary from person to person and even from day to day. Because there's times when I go, I get that. And there's times when I go, I need to think about that. So the definition that I'm defending is that classical rhetoric, Christian classical rhetoric, is the art of decision-making in community. It is not merely the art of persuasion. It is the art of decision-making in community. And even if it were the art of persuasion, it would still be the art of decision-making in community because that's what persuasion is. But there's a goal for Christian classical rhetoric that I don't think can ever be compromised. The nature is that it's decision-making in community. The purpose is to achieve and maintain harmony within the community. And therefore, the question of propriety arises. If the nature is to make decisions in community and the purpose is to maintain harmony in community, what's the appropriate way of doing those things when it comes to speech? Now, this brings me to a really, really simple point that's so simple it's hard to grasp okay i want to read to you let me in fact let me just state the point and those of you who get it then can go do something else those of you who want to think with me can stick around see if i can get it said the point is this when we make decisions in community in order to maintain harmony those decisions should always be oriented, should be based on, let's say, I'm, I'm not sure, let's just leave it at, should be based on the truth. Okay? But the truth needs to be expressed in appropriate ways. And here's the, here's the crucial point. The truth needs to be expressed in appropriate ways. So that the expression of the truth comes from within the truth and radiates outward, not so that you can make the truth more pleasant or agreeable to the person listening. Did anybody write that down? It has to come from within. The expression of the truth has to come from within the truth so that it radiates outward from within the truth, not so that, some, not so that something is added to the truth from the outside in order to make it palatable. Or acceptable. Okay, that's that's the statement I'm going to try to defend tonight. And to and to to put it in context, I want to read three quotes to you, with apologies to those who just came from the other class that I'm teaching, the HVM class, and, and already thought about this. The, the good news for you is I might actually be more coherent now because I've thought about it. 
But there's this book here by called Classical Rhetoric in its Christian and Secular Tradition by George, what is his name? George Kennedy. This was first published in 1981, and it's kind of the locus classicus for the history of rhetoric. You, you won't find a more informative book on the history of rhetoric than this one. Um, however, in this book, I read this word, these words, not by Kennedy. These are not Kennedy's words. He's quoting three different people. On page 279, he quotes somebody named Lawson, who wrote a book called Lectures Concerning Oratory, delivered in Trinity College in 1758. Okay. This is what Lawson argued. Listen very carefully, because every word counts here. To impart truth, it is necessary to soften the severity of her aspect. Aspect in this case meaning her face, her look, the way she's looking at you. Let me read that again. To impart truth, it is necessary to soften the severity of her aspect. Now, I'm going to read another quotation, but before I do, I want to ask you this question. What does that tell you Lawson believed about the truth? To impart the truth, it is necessary to soften the severity of her aspect. Okay, that's one quotation. Now I'm going to go backwards to page 267, and I'm going to read something about virtue. This is from a book I actually, uh, it, it's from a, a book I like a lot by a French author named Fenelon, one of the last, one of the last almost classical rhetoricians or teachers of rhetoric. He says this, I should clarify again, Kennedy quotes Fenelon, who has a character in his book, say this. Okay, so neither Kennedy nor Fenelon are saying this, but a character is saying this. Okay, he says, the good man seeks to please only that he may urge justice and other virtues, which sounds really good so far, doesn't it? The good man seeks to please only that he may urge justice and the other virtues, now watch this, by making them attractive. Now, I'm going to read another passage, but before I do, I want you to think about this question. What does that imply he believes about the virtues? Now I'm going to flip back to page 283. I want to do this just to create disorder in your minds about page numbers. And on page 283, Hugh Blair, one of the most influential uh, teachers of rhetoric in the American schools, lived from 1718 to 1800, and most of our ancestors read his book, if they were Americans here. He wrote this, True eloquence 
is the art of placing the truth in the most advantageous light for conviction and persuasion. True eloquence is the art of placing truth in the most advantageous light for conviction and persuasion. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to make two points about these three comments. Just make the points. One, in all three cases, truth and virtue are regarded as inadequate to the task. And in all three cases, the speaker comes to the rescue of truth and virtue by making them somehow better, making them somehow more acceptable. The classic modern expression of this attitude has been typed up on the screen. You can't handle the truth. Now, I'm going to make an assertion that you're going to probably disagree with, because every time I say this to anybody, the initial response is to argue with me, and that's the proof that I'm right. I don't know why, but I like it. You almost always love the truth. There are almost no occasions when you don't, even as a fallen person, there are almost no occasions when you don't love the truth. The only times you don't are when you are in discord with the truth and you feel it. Now, for that, I, have, I wrote this down so I could try to get the word something like correct. Because there's a point here about truth that the Christian classical world believed differently than we do. And I find that almost everybody believes the way I've expressed it so far in the modern world. Okay, so here's what I'm going to try to communicate. Let me give you a picture first because they're always easier. Some people think that truth is a nut that needs to be cracked. And inside the nut is the kernel of truth. And you open up the nut and there's the truth. Have you ever heard that metaphor? Does that, does that ring a bell with anybody? Now, I'll even go so far as to say that in a certain metaphorical sense, there's truth to it. I'm okay with that. But fundamentally, I want you to notice something. Here's the nut, you crack it, you open it. What happens to that kernel? It dies. Think of it this way. What if truth, instead of being a nut that you have to crack to get at the kernel, is a nut that you have to plant in the ground? And then it grows. And the oak tree is the truth that was hidden in that nut. Okay, that's what I'm arguing. And so I wrote this down in very abstract philosophical terms so that none of us could have any idea what I'm talking about, including me. This is crucial, though, I think. Truth is a property of being. Capital B being and small b being. Truth is a property of being. It can also be what we normally think of. It can also be 
a property of words that talk about being. It's always a property of being. But sometimes we can misrepresent it in our words. When God speaks, got it. When God speaks, he speaks words that are what he speaks. And therefore, for God, there's no difference between the name and the thing. For him, being and words are always absolutely true. His words are true, not only as signs like ours, but as beings. Therefore, our task, and I'm because of time, I'm going to end with this, and we can maybe, if you want, pick this up later on the questions. Our task is not to ornament the truth, is not to make the truth more palatable, to alter it. Our task is to let the truth radiate through our words and our artifacts, even our pictures and images, so that it can be seen. Our task is not to ornament the truth by attaching, like on a Christmas tree, ornaments to it, but to let it radiate, to give it a form through which it can radiate by giving it words that radiate it and artifacts so that we can express it. And the loss of that belief is what led to the loss of classical education, is what led to the loss of a Christian community, a Christian order. And with that, I will stop. That was a hard one, wasn't it? The, the, the acorn helped me a lot, but I know it's a hard one. Okay, done. Great. Okay. I know that's hard because there's a lot more thoughts there. Um, but we will have other chances to come back to these ideas. And if everybody is wondering what in the world this soul um, means or comes back to, then don't worry. I'm sure Father will tie things in in future questions, or we can make time for that next time as well. Okay, so um, now we're going to do a few one-minute questions. Um, the first question, how should we go about nurturing the parent-child relationship while we homeschool classically? What are some practical tips for ideas for this? Give them a lot of hugs. Um, the normal way. Um, one, I, I get the, I have the, I've had the pleasure of a granddaughter uh, being here during this time. And it's a lot easier to be a grandfather than it is to be a father, I can tell you. Um, for some reason, they respect us more. But one of the things that I found to be really effective with my granddaughter, who's just about three, is that if she's misbehaving or she's doing something that's, that's you know, calls for discipline and it's my place at the point at the moment to do anything at all, the first thing I do is I simply say to her what she's doing. 
And I found that to be amazingly effective because what, what we normally do is we tell them to stop. We, we go into command mode. And there's time for that, believe me. But I don't think it should, al- it should always be first. Um, instead, I simply say, you're crying or you're, you're running and I told you to walk. You know, some, I, just, I just tell her what she's doing. It's amazing how often, even crying, how often she'll stop. It's almost laughable. Now we've got a game going on now where I'll say it and then she starts kind of laughing about it. Um, it doesn't work that way with everybody, believe me. But that's something I found to be helpful. But the other thing is, you know, feed the child's body, feed the child's soul and make sure there's enough rest. But also challenge them. Whatever, whatever their age level is, make sure they're constantly gaining new dominion along with you. And make sure you're always bringing rest into it. And make sure that you're always arousing, nurturing, and disciplining their physical and spiritual desires and appetites. All of them are God-given. And if they do that, they're being honored. And that's what we want, above all, is is simply to be honored and respected by, by the other people around us. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an abstract way of answering, except for the first bit, but I kind of have to because of time. But that's, yeah. that's how I would do that. Okay. Good food, though. Great. Okay. Um, another question, very similar question along the same vein. Um, do you think that some children's personalities are more inclined towards classical education than other personalities? Not learning types, just personalities or dispositions no but they're they're inclined toward different aspects of classical education so there will be kids who are more inclined toward um astronomy and others will be more inclined toward poetry which is fine um the the point of classical education is to seek out the universal that's why it's so enormously efficient and so effective is because and even with people with learning disabilities um you focus on what's distinctively human in classical education. That's why it's sometimes called humanities. That's a, that's a classical term. Um, but it referred even to the maths. So, so personalities will lead people to, to, to drift toward one element or another more than the others. But the crucial distinction with classical education is you have to learn all seven arts because each of them is a human mode of perception. And if, and if you don't, then quite, quite literally, although spiritually, you're kind of warping. You, you, you're, you're, you're putting too much weight on, on one foot when you walk all the time. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, this, this mother would like some tips for staying effective as a homeschool teacher with all the distraction and emotional drain. She says, how do you know when to keep your structure and daily routine and when to abandon it to grieve? That's her, her wording. Wow. I I could have given general answers to that until that bit about grieving. Um, That that's (laughs) grief is hard. And so if, if it's literally, if, if it's grieving because somebody has died or some horrible catastrophe or tragedy has entered your life, I think it's absolutely crucial to leave a lot of space for it. Um, I, think, I think grief is a time when our relationships are most threatened because we most need each other during that time. But if it's a husband and a wife that are both grieving, you both need the other 
and you can't give to the other in the same way it seems like and i think i think therefore grieving together and grieving apart permission to grieve apart is crucial um but i don't know if that's really what what the question was about um um your minute is that i hope it was what the question was about then <laughs> sorry feel free to resubmit these questions if i completely missed the point this one says, um, I'm a Ugandan from Africa, and from the research I have done around classical education, it seems geared towards a Western philosophy of life. I love the principles of classical education, but I'm wondering if this can be done in Africa with an African child. In Uganda? Yeah. You didn't, you, didn't write, you didn't set this up yourself. I did not set this up. Well, you're, you, you lived six years in Uganda. You answered the question. It was, it was five years, but, um, Seems I mean, like I, I can, I can certainly speak to this. Are you going to time me? Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, this is where I speak really fast. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, I did go to Uganda because I believed that this was an important task. And in short, I would say that's exactly, you're the people that we need in classical education right now. Um, if you feel like this isn't really a part of your tradition, uh, then then you're what we need to be including in the tradition. I think we need to be broadening things um, and welcoming in more traditions because education is essentially, I think, for two purposes. One is to understand the beauty of all humanity and to celebrate the beauty of all humanity. And then the second is to be educated for your own place and your own community. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, we need to be including Africa and South America and indigenous cultures into our traditions so that we can understand the beauty of humanity at large. But then we also need to be understanding any culture that we're in contact with in our own place so that we can be educated for our community. So yes, absolutely. Minority group, please come into class ed. I would add to that only that if classical education is universal, then it has to be universal. One of one of the one of the best statements I've ever read about about classical education is by a Marxist um, founder of the NAACP, W. E. B. Du Bois, uh, and he talks about his love for Shakespeare. Just look up D D U B O I S W E B Webb Du Bois, except its initials, and and just you know and Shakespeare, and you'll find the quotation. It's magnificent. Yeah, so I agree with that totally. I'm, temp I, I'm going to. I'm going to give you one more minute. I want you to talk about the, the, your, your student's response over there to Homer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so in Uganda, there's a lot of different tribes. And um, some of my students were from various tribes in different regions, which a, tri a different tribe is a different culture. So as we were reading Homer uh, and Virgil together, they were able to teach me so much about the conflicts between the characters because we are looking at a tribal culture and tribal conflict in, in all of these epic poems. Um, so they, they just brought so much to the table that I wasn't aware of. I mean, it's ludicrous to think that in my American mindset, I somehow have better insight into a tribal Greek culture than a tribe. Um, so, so they were just able to really um, open my eyes to a lot of things. And I mentioned to them offhandedly one day that some people in the U.S. asked me why I was teaching epic poetry to Ugandans. 
and they laughed because I said that that people here think that it doesn't have anything to do with them or that they can't relate to it or whatever the case may be. Um, and they, they really thought that was very funny. And I thought it was great that they thought it was funny because yeah. it's, it's a silly thing once you actually enter into a tribal culture. Yeah, yeah. okay. When, when Katie told me the story, she, she described how um, she, was, she, was, she got excited as a teacher about the hospitality that was being shown in, in some context. And she goes, she said something like, isn't that amazing? And they're looking at her with blank stares saying, <laughs> Yeah, when Odysseus arrives at the island of the Phoenicians and, um, or Phycians, and um, yeah, I was trying to impress upon them the amazing hospitality and they're all just like, well, duh. Yeah, yeah that's what you do when a guest comes, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, we have one more question, right? Yes. One more question, and this question might end up being a primary question or another question for next Tuesday. So for the person who sent it in, I'm sorry that it's going to be answered in one minute, but if that's not enough time, we'll carry it over. So um, basically the question is, how do I break away from this public school education mindset, which I've been indoctrinated for many years. So when you've been doing it for so long, how do you set yourself free to really do class ed now? Yeah. Well, that's what I grew up on. You have to escape the cynicism more than anything. You have to believe that, that, that there really is knowable truth. So I'm going to say that there's two things you want to do. One is you want to completely reorient yourself so that you look up into the skies and you find the pole star and you say, that's where I'm going, right? That's what you say. Reorient toward truth. But it's a big ship you're turning. And so then the next question is, what are the specific things I can do? And I would say that the single most important thing to do as you get started moving toward the truth is to read good stories, to read the great stories, uh, especially, of course, the Bible stories, and then, and then Homer. If you, if you start with that, you're oriented toward knowing the truth. You don't know how you're going to do that. You're just saying, I'm going to. And then you read the Bible and you read Homer and you read great literature, great, great literature, the best you can get to your children. And when you don't like it, you don't assume that it's because there's something wrong with the, the great literature. You always just assume the fault is in, is in the viewer. You just assume that, right? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. You just assume you're not trained and stick with it. That, that's how I would start. And then get to know the seven liberal arts as concepts and, and then set yourself to, to learn how to do them and, and implement them and try as hard as you can to escape from methods. The last thing I'll say is take your time. Don't, don't try to be a perfect teacher. Don't try to be perfectly classical or whatever tomorrow there's no such thing right it's it's a dream classical classical approach is a dream nobody has i mean in the whole history of the world there's been about 25 classically educated people thoroughly classically the rest of us are just groping for what we can get we're eating the crumbs off the table but man they're good crumbs katie um okay we're over officially done I want to ask you something, though, um, and I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot here. This topic of grief, 
Uganda is a country that's incredibly um, flexible, resilient, astoundingly resilient, but they've suffered so much. And, and when you were over there, it wasn't like you were there for a five-year party. I mean, you, you grieved over there. Do you, have any, do you have any response about the question about grieving? Yeah, um, I would say, especially if you're a homeschool parent, but even if you're in a school, um, it can be very useful to utilize, not utilize grief, but um, bring healing into your school day because grief is ultimately a challenge of being able to imagine the future um, or accepting that there could be a future that you want or that can, can be good that you can imagine being good. So it's, it's ultimately a question of imagination. So there's two ways that you can use that. One is just obviously with um, giving space for creative writing and for projects where you're exploring the imagination and writing about what has caused the grief um, or writing imaginary futures. Um, things like that can be a really good way to communally grieve together and bring healing. Um, cause ultimately it is the, the imagination is what needs to be nurtured in order to work through grief. Um, and then the second thing is if you're, if you're trying to help your child believe that the future can be a good thing, then just on a daily basis, that means predictability. So having a structured, logical, easy by easy, I mean, ease filled or grace filled structure, um, to the day so that there's not all that stress of, oh, what's coming next? Oh, what's coming next? If you have predictable flows and rhythms in the day, that's another way of making it easier to imagine um, a future even an hour or two hours or four hours down the road that's a lot more comfortable um, and, and enjoyable for the child. So those two things are ways to help them face the future and develop imagination. So you can actually use a time of grieving together communally to build up um, those, those imaginative skills. Mm. Excellent. What both of those answers to me point to the importance of ritual and children are exceedingly ritualistic people. Um, they, they respond well to, to rituals. It makes them feel at home. They like to have certain things happen at bedtime. They like to have certain things happen in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I think the writing, building writing rituals into your day, if they're old enough, would be very good. And then the, and then the second thing you were talking about, don't, don't be afraid of rituals. And be careful about rituals, if I can say this, that you don't, they're not laws and regulations. They're rituals. You know, they're, they're ways of doing things. And rituals sometimes work and sometimes don't. You, you, don't, you don't clamp down on them. You just set a pattern, right? Like you're playing a musical instrument. You, you always brush the bow across the string the same way, ritualistically. That's not legalism. That's just working with the instrument. And in, in the same way, you want your life to be musical that way. But you also sometimes squeak the, the string, and that's okay. That's a thank you, Katie. That was... She's, she's insightful. My girl, I just want you all to know. I think everyone's picked up on that by now. Hope so. Well, everybody should feel free to go, but I noticed one from April. My family just jumped into the deep end with this type of education. Kids are six to 16. 
any advice? Huh. Lots of uh, questions. <laughs> Take your time is, is, is a really, really big one for me. And, and maybe I, I just repeat what I said before is, is get pointed to the North Star and then just persevere, persevere and go for it. It's going to be really hard. I mean, what, what's going to happen is possibly if you're lucky, you're going to have a few months maybe of sort of enthusiasm and honeymoon, maybe a month. Enjoy that, but don't expect it to last. The, uh, the, the, the newness of it is going to be wonderful. The new discoveries. And then you're going to need discipline to keep it going. So you know, pace yourself. Take your time. Don't try to be perfect. Don't try to do everything right, right off the bat. Uh, what, what works, delight in it. Celebrate it. But Katie, let me let me turn it over to you for this. Then, um, any advice for somebody jumping in, jump, jumping, jumping into the deep end with kids six to sixteen? You know what? I will just before you go. I'll mention something. Some of you know this, or maybe all of you know it by now. But Katie does private consultations with homeschool parents, and if anybody's interested in that, Katie, what's your email address? Um, yeah, my email address. I'll type it in the box. It's Rena J Kern at Gmail. Yeah, my Cersei email is not working right now, okay. um, but you can you can email me here. Oops, I just sent it to you privately. I'll email it to everyone. You can also sign up for the homeschool consultations on the Cersei webpage. But I'll type in my um, my email here if anyone wants to contact me for a private consultation. Um, but more generally, you're asking for someone with ages six to sixteen how to get how to jump in more deeply. She said she did jump in deeply. Any advice? They jumped in the deep end of this kind of education. Any advice? Um, I guess I'd have to have to know how they jumped, <laughs> right? Like it's hard to give advice when you don't know what the jump looks like. Um, hmm. Can you, can you, uh, April, I think you're the one who messaged us that. Can you give a little more context for us? If you've already jumped in, um, then it's it's hard to give advice without knowing how that went. Um, so I'll wait for a message if you would like. If you'd like more, let me take a quick look to see if she's still here. Oh, okay. Because we can pick that up again next session. Then I don't. Yeah. See, I, I don't think she's here, which is great. Okay. Okay. So. okay. We'll pick it up next time. There's another question here. Um, that says, any advice for someone who's teaching literature to 11th and 12th graders and you want to teach classically, but you're not in a classical context? Hmm. Um, I do have advice for that because I've done this. Um, I, it's, the thing that I think it's easy to forget is that classical education is very simple. And um, it's really not hard to teach literature classically. As long as you have the space, I don't know. Can you, sorry, my mom keeps turning my lights out when I do this. <laughs> um, I don't know exactly what the program is, and I don't know what limitations you have. Um, but if you're if you're teaching literature um, and you're enjoying the text, you're reading aloud, you're asking the should question, the normative questions. Um, I I suggest always using the five common topics from LTW as ways of generating questions. 
Um, for 11th and 12th graders, you can have them doing the Socratic discussions with the five common topics and you can just sit and listen. Um, you can um, just let them be generating ideas from the text. As long as you're treating the text as a living thing, um, come to the book like you would a friend, introduce yourself, let it introduce itself to you and don't start with analyzing it and breaking it down and telling them what they're going to get out of it. Let it be a living thing that's unique and different to every single one of them. And they tell you what it, what it is and what it's bringing um, to them. And then you can discuss it together. I think those are um, the most important things. And you can do that whether you're in a classical setting or not. Real quickly, I think that that comment I made or that analogy I used before of the acorn fits there. That what you a book is not an acorn that you're trying to crack open, right? It's the tree, and you, you want to climb in it. You want to you want to get to know it as it is, and the the common topics are a great way to do that, and the should question, things like that. Yeah, I use the five common topics um, with all of my classes all the time, regardless of the mm -hmm. subject. And another important thing when I'm assessing literature. I do what I call a reverse test, which is actually an idea I got from Josh Gibbs, where you basically grade them on the quality of the questions they're asking rather than you giving them a bunch of questions. In class, you can help them figure out how to generate good questions. And then when it comes time to take a test or to assess, um, just read their questions and assess them on their ability to ask good questions. I think that's so much more important when it comes to literature than um, having the right answers. What you, what, what you need to give your students and children, as I can see it, is two things, forms and skills. And the skills you need to give them are thinking skills, which means questions. And if you can give them the five common topics and they can learn how to ask those questions of themselves and each other, I mean, they... Wow, it's amazing to watch what happens. And then the forms would be something like the form of a plot, right? If, they, if they've read enough stories, you can, you can help them see the form of a plot. But it's boring if they just learn it as a, hey, look, every story has this form. All that does is make them feel like a trick is being played on them in every story. But if there's, but if there's a living form that they're learning how to Really, I probably would recommend teaching the form of a plot when you're teaching writing, not when you're teaching reading. And then they'll transfer it back into the reading. Or if you're teaching it so that they can read better, teach it by having them create a tiny little story with, with the five stages of a story. All right. There was one that I wanted to respond to. Megan wrote... Um, she wrote something quite beautiful. She says, my husband is from Honduras. And what I have come to understand is that he is at times the better classical education, class, classical educator in regard to the pursuit of truth through engaging the soul before you, through engaging the soul before you and asking the right questions. I think what we as Americans have at times taken claim to be uniquely classical is actually found more naturally in the, dare I say, more human cultures. I agree with that. Down below, she said something along the line of, can you speak to my flawed thinking? And there's nothing flawed in that. 
I, I think that's very correct. I think that, that, that American culture is subhuman, that in order, we are specialists, and, and in order to become an expert at something, and that's the whole thing about you, you have to cut off so many things about yourself. And we are driven by specialization and fragmentation, and we're not good at connecting. We're not sociable people, really. I mean, within the church, you get a lot more of that. And certainly within the Muslim community, you get a lot more of that. And I'm not going to say, you know, every American, but we're a big country. So you guys know where I'm going. But I think generally speaking, the public demeanor and the public countenance of America is to be working all the time. And when we're not working, we're just lazing, entertaining ourselves. And we're not good at sitting around a table and, and enjoying each other's company. And, I, and I, I think a culture, from what I understand, which would be a great deal less than Megan, but seems to me any, any Central American culture, and good grief if they suffered, but any Central American culture is going to have more of a sense of community than, than American culture does. I don't want to be harsh and cruel, but we're not known worldwide for being communal we are we are we are known worldwide for being super friendly but i think i think the reputation there is because people think we want to buy something or sell something we want to get them to buy something we're, we're always we're always in salesman mode i think is we're always smiling because we're always in salesman mode it seems but i think i think that's absolutely correct that, that other I, I, a few here's a few things i've noticed that musicians and artists tend to take to classical education very quickly. School teachers tend to resist it. I find that interesting. Scientists tend to go partway. And people from other cultures tend to go, yeah, that's beautiful. And Americans go, ah, we don't need that. So is there, is there, is there any... Um, yeah, Rosaria, I should have asked her. She's got some good text. What was the text by Josh that you found that in? Was it a, what was it, a blog or a book? Oh, it was a blog that he must have written seven years ago or something. I, I read it many years ago when I was, I don't know, just stumbled upon it. And I've used it ever since. It's an old Cersei blog. Do, do you remember a word or something that might be a cute clue that you do a Josh Gibbs word search? Um, questions, questions, using questions for assessment, questions, test. Reverse test, maybe? Did he use that? I think that I made up the term reverse test, okay. um, but it's been so long now that I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, he was using it, I think, when he's talking about Boethius, but I, I mean, honestly, it's been so long now, I don't even remember. I just, he has so many little gems and I just like gather them over the years and now I don't know where I find them. Kind of a genius. He's so great. Um, do you want to answer the question about Homer? I think this is a, a good one to answer. How should I read Homer to a six and eight year old boy? Um, it says, I read a short version of the Odyssey by Mayor Pope Osborne and they loved it. What should I do next? I can play it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, um, Homer's so playable, especially the Odyssey. No, both of them. They're so playable. So, you know, maybe go to some toy store and buy some Heroes of the Iliad. <laughs> hey, we should design those. Um, 
but but um let them play it in the yard um and then and then i would say small pieces read a a, a story here and a story there um the odyssey is is um it's about storytelling just like the alien is about rhetoric and it's it's these links it's all these little stories that are linked together um in a in a beautiful chain and i would say i would say that you can pick out any link and it'll stand on its own quite well in fact some some things are just stories that characters in the odyssey tell so that would be an approach i think just telling them stories from the odyssey that you like or seeing you know kids love repetition if there's some if there's some story in it that they like read that story to them again um, I, really, I don't want to pretend that the Odyssey or Homer is the Bible, but but the way we read the Bible, we read partly because it's the Word of God and partly because there's so much there and it takes a lifetime. And so some of the things that we do with the Bible would be fitting for Homer. And that would be things like, as I've said, play, pick stories out. If you can find a, a storybook that's of a story from the Iliad or uh, from the Odyssey, that would be fine. You can you could also play some academic games like here's the names of characters. Oh, we had an Arista play game. What was that called? A mythology Arista play. Um, look up Arista play. I don't know if they still exist, but they, it's kind of like Monopoly. You go around the board, but all the but all the uh, all the squares are based on some Greek mythology. They have a whole bunch of different games, but they're all the same game basically. Um, I think they had one for astronomy, didn't they? Yeah. Anyway, um, just make it a part of your life, but never more important than the Bible. Um, sometimes do a do a do a chat the way not a devotional by any means, but but you know ask them a question like, "What do you think Homer's trying to get across here?" or a question like, um, um, "Do you think you should do that?" Things like that. Engage in in short discussions like like with fairy tales um makes me think though that what we what we should do katie is we should take little stories out of the Iliad of me odyssey and publish them as little 10 or 20 page books with your pictures in them oh yeah yeah one thing that i would say to this not that i was asked but um <laughs> having a daughter that's quite young um, when she was five, six years old, she really started to love the Iliad and the Odyssey mm. because anytime we were waiting somewhere, like at a restaurant waiting for food or in line, which in Uganda, you was wait in line for like five hours a day. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, we would just, she would just say, tell me, tell me that story about the man going to his wife. And then I would tell her the next bit in the story. And I think it took us like six months of us just every day, whenever we were waiting somewhere for something, she'd say, Oh, tell me what happens next. Um, and the beauty of that is that she viewed it as something pleasurable that could come into a, a mundane moment of the day and brighten it up rather than being something that you're torn away from a, a, something you want to do and you have to come do the reading. Like if you can reverse that as much as possible, then that's going to really be a, a, a lot of joy. But don't force it on them. I'll just add that because, because they might not yeah. like it. And then if you're trying to make them enjoy it, they dislike it even more. So, you know, she was volunteer, voluntarily coming forward and it's a beautiful thing, but don't get upset if they don't. There's other things that they'll enjoy that are just as wonderful for them at that time. That's good, Katie. Thank you. What I love is that you're starting young. Oh, I start young. 
Yeah. I have a private question here. Um, I think that we've talked about this in previous weeks, but I'm not sure. Uh, is it better to do lots of books um, if you're trying to do the great books curriculum in high school? Is it good to try and do all of them? Um, but is, is that simply just moving too fast? Oh, my, my view is, is um, if you can read one book and, and, and they stay in it without distraction, that's what you should do. But they won't. They won't have the tolerance for the one book. So then you should bring in other books. But the idea of reading lots of books is very frustrating to me because um, I, I do think you talked earlier that, about treating your books like friends. And, and I do think like that, that if you introduce your, your kids to a lot of people, they won't know any of them well. Although what will happen is they will find among them ones that they like. And so then you let them enjoy the friends they choose if you're willing to do that, right? But it just, it, it, in terms of the forms and the questions that we're trying to teach our kids, we don't need, they don't need to read a lot of books. In fact, Vitorino de Felcher, who's one of my favorite classical educators, he taught in Florence, I think. He would teach kids for about 10 or 12 years, and they would read six books. Homer, Virgil, I think Ovid, only classics. But I mean, do you think if kids are learning to read that deeply, they won't read something else on their own time? I, I do think of a, a line by Lewis where he's, he's kind of despondent about the idea that you'd have to teach children how to read novels. The idea that you, the idea that children are so uneducated that you would have to actually teach them how to read a novel. If you teach your children Homer, they will not have any trouble with novels. They won't, they won't have any trouble with hard novels. They'll pick up War and Peace, and it won't be a challenge for them. They'll say, "Hey, I already read this." You know, right? They'll read Dostoevsky, and and they'll say, "Oh, yeah." But if but if you give them, you know, a bunch of novels they'll never get good at it because you don't get good at reading novels by reading them fast. You get good at novel reading novels by, by, by dwelling in them. So here's what I would say to that. Um, if you have to, let's, let's say, so one year I taught my, my class 16 Shakespeare plays four per quarter, which was too much. But what we did then, the way we made it manageable is I would teach them two plays a week each. Then I would teach them a third play in two weeks. And then that would leave me four weeks. And I would concentrate on one play for the four weeks. And that, that worked. I would rather just do four plays in the course of the year. But it's actually, in this way, it was good because I would do four comedies. And the first comedy they would read would be here, get used to comedy. Get, get used to a Shakespearean comedy. Then I'd do a second one. and then. Then I would do a two-week comedy to get a feel for a little closer look. And in the four weeks, we could really, you could, you could get into them pretty good in four weeks, but not to my satisfaction. I think, I think the, somebody said the overachiever in me has to remind me that less can be more. And, and I think that's so important. Um, but, but I want to say that you, you, it's really not a question of overachieving. It's a question of what you're achieving. If, if what you're trying to do is, is check a lot of things off the list and say, I read a lot of books, 
yeah, but what happened to your skill set, right? What happened to your mental training? What happened to your disciplines? Did you become a better reader by doing that? And look, the the thing is, the the simple reality is there's 20,000 books published a year in English or something like that. And that doesn't even count ebooks. I bet it's 50,000 now with Amazon, but there's thousands upon thousands of books, many of which are good. And the great books that come out every you know, few years, they're all great. And you're going to miss most of them. So what? Right? Find, find some that really feed your soul, feed your children's soul, and, and love them. If you, if you feel like you have to get to know them all, it's too much like polygamy for me. Just, just have, have a few authors that you really, really love. And, then, and, and the thing is, the truth, the truth reveals itself in ever new ways from the great books. And then they shine light on everything else you read. And that's one of the things, that's why I can constantly talk about Homer, because you will never, ever, ever read another book that Homer doesn't help you understand. Never. Ever. There's no possibility. Even the Bible. Homer has helped me understand the Bible. And then I can reverse it. Virgil, the same. My goodness. So, so you know, if you're part of a, a, a school, part of a system that requires lots of books, then what I would do is read the, a bunch of the books quickly. So you can you tell them to read them and maybe write a paragraph summary of the book. But then pick one that you're really going to focus on. At least one per quarter, let's say. Better would be one per semester. But what you're trying to teach them how to do is read, not, not fly. Right? You go to you go to pilot school for flying. Well, 10 o'clock. Thank you all for coming. And keep sending the questions. I love your questions. And more than that, may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.